Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. I really, really like the music of Frank Sinatra. Uh, I frequently listen in my car to the Sirius XM station that plays his music, and uh, I like that. And I, I particularly used to get chills when I heard Sinatra sing his song, his classic, My Way. It, it appealed to something in me. Uh, but notice I say I used to get chills when I heard him sing that because uh, as I really thought about what he's saying and considered the implications of the lyrics, my my thoughts about it have changed considerably. I mean, here are just a few of them. And now the end is near. I'm not really going to sing. I shouldn't have done that. And so I face the final curtain. I've lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway and more, much more than this. I did it my way. I planned each charted course each careful step along life's byway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, there were times I'm sure you knew when I bit off more than I could chew, but through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all, and I stood tall, and I did it my way. For what is man? What has he got if not himself? Then he has not to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Well, see, that's what got Adam and Eve in so much trouble. The desire to do it our way is the great human temptation. It always has been. In the beginning, God said, if you do things my way, you can have the life I dream for you. You can have life in all of its fullness. But if you want, I'll let you do it your way. But if you choose to do it your way, I'm only going to be able to help you so much. Your choice, God said, your way or my way. And I think the fact is that each of us, in ways large and small, make that fundamental choice every day of our lives. Are we going to do it our way, or are we going to do it his way? So over the past several weeks, we've been teaching about wisdom from the ancient Proverbs of Solomon and some other inspired and wise sages. And part of what we've learned, and I repeat, is that ultimate wisdom is understanding how God designed the world to work, and it follows living accordingly. I submit then that the opposite of that is foolishness, The opposite of wisdom is foolishness, and that one definition of foolishness is living life our way. Whether it's in direct opposition to God or just ignorance of God's ways, in fact, the more I've thought about it, the more I've come to believe that Frank Sinatra's song, My Way, is just plain stupid. And I've now ruined it for many of you at least from a biblical perspective. 
Hey, Elvis sang it too, if you'll remember, and you see where that got him. But anyway, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom personified, as we've taught over the last several weeks, as an attractive lady tells us that she was there when God designed the world, that the world was in fact designed through her, through wisdom. And she tells us that if we'll listen to her explain how to live life the way God designed it, that the simple person or teachable person will become wise, and the wise person will become wiser still. Last week, I began to get at this by teaching how that living life according to God's design or God's way brings us well-being. Well-being has to do with holistic wellness. Well-being has to do what is truly in a person's self-interest. Well-being has to do what is ultimately good for a person. And the more I've studied Proverbs, and I've studied it extensively over the last couple of months, the more I've become convinced that wisdom brings well-being. In fact, I got to thinking about it just like this in a simple way. I was reading my Bible, and uh, there's a heading at the, at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 3 that sums up the proverb, and the heading simply says, Wisdom bestows well-being. And I thought that's an interesting way to think about this. But again, the more I've studied, the more I've become convinced that that statement almost encapsulates, at least in a big picture way, the whole message of Proverbs. Wisdom brings well-being. So last week I started teaching through Proverbs chapter 3, the first section of Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 3, 1 through 10. And I... uh uh, divide Proverbs 3 chat, verses 1 through 10 into five sections. I'm sorry. Yeah, into five points, two verses each. And it's interesting the way that this works out because when you read Proverbs chapter 3, 1 through 10, the odd verse is a wise instruction. And the even verse is a result or what you can expect to happen if you follow the wise instruction. So the first verse, wise instruction. The second verse, here's what will happen if you follow it. And it's, it represents some aspect of well-being. Third verse, wise instruction. Fourth verse, some aspect of well-being. Here is uh, the, the text entire, Proverbs 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Verse 1, don't forget my commands. This is what I taught at length about last week. What does that mean, to keep God's commands? He said, but keep them in your heart. They will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Verse 3, Let and this is where we're going to pick up today. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Verse 4, then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. 
Verse six, in all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Verse seven, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Verse eight, this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Verse nine, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Verse 10, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. So I'm gonna pick this up today. Last week, I began with five wise instructions and four ways wisdom brings well-being. I got through one of those last week. I'm going to try to deal with three of them this week and touch on the fourth one, and then I'll pick up the rest of this text, Lord willing, next Sunday morning, all right? So, you're dismissed. I'm kidding. Four wise instructions and four ways wisdom brings well-being. One, which is actually now Proverbs 3, verses 3 and 4, cultivate love and faithfulness, win favor and a good name. Cultivate love and faithfulness. That's the wise instruction. The way wisdom brings well-being, win favor and a good name. All right, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. I'll read it again. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. It's interesting that love and faithfulness are two ways that God describes his own character in Scripture and ways that those who knew God wrote in the inspired word of God about God's character, love and faithfulness, are covenantal descriptions of God himself. To never leave love and faithfulness means to be in covenant with God. To be in covenant has to do with making mutual promises. God says, if we're in covenant with him, I promise you, and we in return say back to God, I promise you. But what God is promising us is love and faithfulness. And this is no small thing. When God showed Moses his glory in Exodus chapter 34, this is how God described himself. He said, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. One example of many that describes how Inspired writers spoke of God is the 115th Psalm, which has the psalmist saying, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. So these words, love and faithfulness, describe God's attitude toward us and involvement with us, his covenant partners. He loves us and he's faithful to us. And I love this imagery here. We are to, we are to bind love and faithfulness around our necks. And we're supposed to write love and faithfulness in our hearts. It's like, uh, wearing a necklace, if you please, that reminds you of something. And in this case, it's a, let's say a, a, a chain link necklace where every link, 
Every other link is love, faithfulness, love, faithfulness, love, faithfulness, love, faithfulness. And you're to wear love and faithfulness around your neck so you constantly see it. And you're supposed to get this in your heart where you feel it, where you think it, where you live in a constant awareness of God's love and faithfulness. Some of us have a relationship with God shaped by false theology growing up in toxic church settings where our attitude towards God is more, you know, it's, it's having a, 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 a rose in our hand like we may have done when we were trying to figure out whether or not someone loved us as teenagers and we pluck a petal and say, he loves me. The next one, he loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Some of us have that kind of a relationship with God if we're honest. That's what we feel in our hearts. He loves me. He loves me not. One time we, we grasp the idea he loves us and then, you know, we make a mistake or something happens or something causes us to question the world around us and we're saying he loves me not. But in fact, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to say he loves me. He's faithful to me. 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 Until we get that in our hearts because that's part of our covenant with God is God says, you want to know who I am? I abound in love and faithfulness. And then what happens is that when we get this in us, we begin to convey love and faithfulness from our lives. In fact, the scripture here, uh, which says, let love and faithfulness never leave you, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Uh, the theologians, scholars who study this question whether or not this is referring to God or whether this is referring to us. And the fact is I've come to believe it's referring to both. His love and faithfulness shapes us to such an extent that our capacity to be loving and faithful grows in proportion to our acceptance of God's love and faithfulness in our lives. And then what happens? What's the well-being that happens as a result of love and faithfulness? I love it. It says that then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. I, I, you know, like almost everything I teach about from scripture, I wish I had like an hour on every concept just to dig in. I, I, I desperately wish we could understand how life forming it is when you really begin to grasp how much God loves you and how God will always be faithful to you. When you know that in the deepest part of your being, it affects everything around you, including the way you convey yourself in this world. Because when you get, for instance, someone who truly understands God's grace will be a gracious person ungracious people too often ungracious people are religious people 
who got bad theology and think that they somehow earn God's favor and therefore have an edge to them and a self-satisfied, look how good I am thing about them. And oftentimes, religious people can be the most ungracious people in the world, which is why we have to do away with that kind of thinking and we have to understand the grace of God, his unmerited favor. The fact is, for whatever reason... He loves us, and for whatever reason, he's faithful to us. And when that shapes the way we think, we're loving, we're faithful. When we get grace, we're gracious. And then what happens? We win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. You know what it feels like? I think most of you do. By the way, to all of you watching online, the 9 o'clock crowd, is 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 pretty fired up this morning i have to say i, I and and uh I, I encourage you you press that little button where all the hearts go up like yeah i like what he's saying and i'm going to ask later how many hearts went up while i was preaching you know what it feels like to live in favor favor by definition, the, the, the Hebrew word translated favor here has to do with being well-received, especially by superiors. And pr- the primary superior, of course, is God. But then there are other people in a position to do good to us. And when we're marked by love and faithfulness and convey love and faithfulness, people in a position to do good to us for whatever reason do good to us. We have favor. It's amazing to live in the favor of God. Think about driving to your favorite restaurant. The traffic for some reason is light. Every light is green. You find the perfect parking space right in front of the restaurant. You get the best table. You have a fabulous meal, and then someone you don't know picks up your check unexpectedly. And I'm just going to tell you, I could tell you story after story after story in, in, in my life where, for whatever reason, I just walked in favor, and people did things for me that I didn't deserve, and... Uh, God opened doors that, that, that I didn't even knock on and just favor. It's an amazing thing to live in favor. But this is what happens when our lives are shaped by God's love and faithfulness and we conduct ourselves with love and faithfulness towards others. We win favor and a good name. And one of the blessings, I, um, I talked to Sharon this morning about a story that, that, I w- that I was going to tell about this, but I'm afraid it would take too much time. But I could tell story after story. It's an amazing thing. After 30 years of God's grace on our church, the accumulation of favor and God's blessing on our reputation, that doesn't mean that there aren't people out there who don't like me or like us, and that, that's part of, of a tr- uh, moving a thing forward and trying to accomplish something great and being imperfect, by the way. But somehow or another, by God's grace, just 30 years of just God's grace on something, and it's just crazy the way there's favor all over the place. Okay, here's the second thing. Here's the second wise instruction in way wisdom brings well-being. It's trust in God he will remove the obstacles to your success. 
Trust in God, he will remove the obstacles to your success. Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. So here's the wise instruction. First of all, it's to trust in the Lord. Um, Raymond Ortland, in his beautiful commentary on Proverbs, wrote this about this famous passage. He said, this Hebrew word translated trust is cognate with or uh, has the same linguistic derivation or is connected to linguistically an Arabic verb that means to throw oneself down on one's face. The word trust. To throw oneself down on one's face. To lie down spread eagle in complete reliance. To make it as graphic as I can, Ortland writes, to do a belly flop on God. With all our sin and all our failure and all our fears, we stake everything on the gospel promises of God. If God fails us, we are damned. If God comes through, we are saved forever. Real trust is that blunt and daring and simple. I love it. Do a belly flop on God, the writer of Proverbs says. See, trust is an all-in commitment. It only works in relationship with God when it's done with all of our hearts. To half-trust God is to not trust at all. And this is manifest when we lean not on our own understanding. Now this doesn't think, this doesn't mean that we don't think or plan. It just means that we make sure that our thoughts and plans are in alignment with his thoughts and plans. And that doesn't just mean a minute by minute decision we're making and trying to hear, you know, you know, that voice in our heart that speaks to us what to do or not. This is a whole life belly flop on God, God's design for the world, God's word and what it says. This is, this is an all-in, I am all-in, belly-flopping on God and everything about him. I am all-in, and I'm not leaning on my own understanding. We get ourselves in a lot of trouble when we are our own reference point for what we're doing in our lives. Um, I, I read about an article called 178 Seconds to Live, about 20 pilots who were capable pilots in clear weather, but who'd never taken instrument training. Each was put on a flight simulator and instructed to do whatever he could to keep the plane under control as he flew into thick, dark clouds and stormy weather. The article stated that all 20 pilots in this simulation crashed and killed themselves within an average of 178 seconds. It took these seasoned pilots with skilled intuition less than three minutes to crash and burn because they were trusting their own intuition about what the plane was doing without having the ability to see and get a visual reference point outside of themselves. And the same 
context, I read about a relatively inexperienced co-pilot navigating through thick storm clouds. He had instruments, but he didn't trust his instruments and decided to make a course correction by his own understanding. The pilot saw what he had done just in time, made a correction, and then pointed at the inexperienced co-pilot, pointed him to the instruments, and he said, believe those things. We'll both live longer. See, what happens in life when we become our own reference point, when we're trusting in our own sense of things, when we're trusting in our own understanding, when we decide to pick and choose from what we're going to believe in God's word, for instance, or when we're making decisions, you know, just based on, you know, however anybody else around us would make decisions. When we lean on our own understanding, things do not end up well for us. The fact is that we are called to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our understand, on understanding, meaning that we're always looking for a reference point, God and his word outside of ourselves. See, sometimes, in fact, I think most of the time, we and our my way mentality is our own worst enemy. We are the source of much of our pain. We were made to be dependent on a wisdom outside of ourselves, to know that we cannot control everything, to know that we, in fact, need help. We need help. Richard Rohr, the uh, Franciscan priest whose writings are beloved by many, including me, wrote this, In his book, God's Wisdom for Navigating Life, he said, every age has had its pain, and spirituality in its best sense is about what we do with our pain. In a culture with no transcendent sinner, there is no one to whom we can hand over the pain. When a people no longer knows that God is, God is good, God can be trusted, and God is on our side, we frankly have very serious problems. And he writes about what he calls behavioral atheism. These are people who may say they believe in God, but behave as if they don't really trust God, and they try to control everything in their own lives. And and Rohr writes, we only need to be control freaks when we don't believe that God is in charge, or when we can't trust God to be in charge. Practical atheism is probably the most common way that we all live. Reminds me of a, of a scene from Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. Luke Skywalker is training with Yoda, trying to become a Jedi warrior, and um, they're in some swampy kind of yucky place, and, and Luke Skywalker sees a, a, the mouth of a cave, and it's very dark inside. And uh, he, he says to Yoda, I, I, I sense evil, evil in the cave. And Yoda says, in you must go. 
And Skywalker goes in the cave and he takes his lightsaber with him and he, when he gets into the darkness of the cave, all of a sudden he sees his arch enemy, Darth Vader, and they engage in, 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 in a battle of life's lightsabers. It doesn't last long though. Skywalker cuts the head off of Darth Vader and the, 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 the head in, ensconced in a helmet rolls on the floor, ends up looking up and the, the visor of the helmet blows off. And Luke Skywalker looks at the face in the helmet and what he sees is his own face. He sees himself staring back at himself. The idea, of course, being who really is the evil that I'm fighting? The evil is me. Who, 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 who really is my enemy? The enemy is me. Who really is the one who causes me the most pain? The one who causes me the most pain is me. Most of the time, our my way mentality is the biggest enemy we face in life to which the wise writer of Proverbs says, do a belly flop on God and don't lean on your own understanding. Because if you submit to God, he will direct your paths. As Roar says, As Rohr says in another place, one of the very, one of the few generalizations we can make in the field of universal spirituality is this. No one else is your problem. You are always the locus of conversion and transformation. It is always about you, first of all. Always. And so what do we do? We resolve to be people who will not do life our way. We resolve to be people who do not lean on our own understanding. We do a belly flop on God. And then it goes on to say, in all your ways, submit to him. Is there anything in your life you haven't submitted to God? Is there a problem that you're facing that you haven't submitted to God? Have you submitted your business to him? Have you submitted your relationships to him? Have you submitted your finances to him? Have you submitted your political positions to him? Have you submitted everything to God? I encourage you, do a belly flop on God. Trust him. And then, what's the well-being? He will make your path straight. A straight path is the shortest path to your destiny. God will direct your paths. He will remove all obstacles in your way. Here's the third wise instruction and in the way we experience well-being. Everybody doing okay? Everybody online, I hope you're doing okay. Proverbs, so here it is. Fear the Lord, experience health and vitality. Here I come back to this fear the Lord thing. I, I didn't, when I started going on Proverbs, let's just little inside baseball. Sausage making. Uh, I think of another metaphor I can mix. I really, my intention was to do a real felt needsy series. It's really what my plan was. Take a proverb, some pithy statement about, you know, something about life. And I actually am still going to do that. We still have three more months of teaching in Proverbs. But the more I dug into it, the more I got the magnitude of this, this idea 
That you, it doesn't matter what you do in the, in the, in the, in the micro reality of life. The macro picture is essential. And it constantly, you know, this, how God designed the world. You can't be wise if you don't submit yourself to how God designed the world, which is why I've hammered away at that in recent weeks, not so much this week. And, 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 and you can't, Nothing works if you don't fear the Lord. And, and, and that's the theme. The, the most important verse in Proverbs is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Or in one place it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And over and over this gets hammered home in Proverbs. And here's another one. Let me show you maybe a little more practical way that this works. So fear the Lord, experience health and vitality. Proverbs 3, 7, and 8. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil, this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. So we can sum up the instruction by saying, yet again, fear the Lord. When we fear the Lord, we are not wise in our own eyes, and we shun evil. Evil at its core, or sin, is about having self, the my way, at the center. When we truly fear the Lord, then we have God at the center. We're not wise in our own eyes. We do not celebrate doing life my way. We celebrate doing life his way. Remember, the fear of the Lord is not uh, about our knees knocking in God's presence. The fear of the Lord has to do with acknowledging God as God and all that that means. It's, It's saying he is God and I am not. Now let's jump ahead to the well-being part of this passage and then come back to the fear the Lord part. When we fear the Lord, we're told that we experience holistic health. We have health in our body and nourishment in our bones. The message translation says it like this. Don't assume that you know it all. Run to God. Run from evil. Your body will glow with health. Your very bones will vibrate with life. The wise writers of Proverbs... Recognize the psychosomatic reality that when our soul is right, it affects everything in our being, even and especially our physical health. In recent years, science has caught up to this ancient wisdom of Scripture and reveals that we can, in fact, think ourselves sick. We can feel ourselves sick. What does the fear of the Lord have to do with this? Well, when we acknowledge God as God and let him be God in our lives. And when we don't try to be God and when we do a belly flop on God, then God helps us in ways that only God can help us because he is God. We, we live, and you know this, in an age of anxiety. I've heard this age described that way. Uh, mental health issues run rampant. A lot of Wonderful people are suffering with mental health issues in a variety of ways. Uh, and, and at least for anxiety, worry about any number of things is at the heart of anxiety. Worry is at the heart of anxiety. And, and my, my thinking on this is informed by Daniel Goleman's wonderful work on emotional intelligence. Worry about any number of things is the heart of anxiety. Some of what we worry about is specific and identifiable. We know what it is that's eating at us. Sometimes, though, we're anxious without even realizing why. We're just aware of a low hum of angst. 
And when our emotions are hijacked by uh, anxiety, then anxiety can move from worry to fear to terror to horror. Well, one of the things that we have to do in life is we have to figure out what we're going to worry about. Or a better way to say it is this. We have to figure out what we're going to be afraid of. Here's something fascinating that Jesus said. Luke 12, 4. Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid, which is the theme of what he's teaching about in this section. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you shall, you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God, and he gets back on track for what he's talking about, which is do not be afraid. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. No comment to that passage. And then he says, don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. It's almost, a con well, it is a confusing text. Don't be afraid. Fear God. Don't be afraid. That's what he says. What's going on here? See, he's saying, if you truly fear God, you won't fear anything or anyone else. It's what he's saying. See, to fear God is to believe in him and to believe in what he says. Remember, fear is faith moving in the wrong direction. It's faith in the wrong thing. When we're anxious, it's because we believe something bad may happen. But Jesus says, if you'll fear me, or if you believe in me, or if you'll do a belly flop on me, then you won't be afraid of anything else. Years ago, somebody gave me a book. Uh, I, I actually didn't read the book, but I like the title, and I've referenced it a time or two. The title is, When People Are Big, God is Small. People are big, God is small. If you get the concept of the book. I mean, that's a, great, uh, that's a great book title, right? But probably like my books, I bought it like you've done with my book. Buy it, put it on the shelf, and say, yeah, that's an interesting concept. But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, where was I? Um, when people are, I'm a, I was on the shelf. I was on the shelf. <laughs> By the way, it has nothing to do with anything. I would trust me, I was not going to say, well, I, I just signed a new book deal. Uh, got the contract this week, and we're going we're gonna to make people pinky swear that they actually read this next book that I'm writing. Anyway. When people are big, God is small. You get the concept right, right on its face, right? When, 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 when you are afraid of people or you're, you're upset at people or whatever it is you are with people and they're big in your mind, God is small. Well, the converse then would be if God is big, people are small, right? But, 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 but really you could fill in the blank, which is to say when blank is big, 
put it, whatever it is, whatever it is. When blank is big, God is small. Or again, conversely, when God is big, blank is small. You put into that blank whatever it is that's causing you to lose sleep at night, and you understand that if that thing is big enough to cause you to lose sleep, then you don't really fear the Lord. Do you understand what I mean? But if you fear the Lord, if you say he is God and I am not, and I can trust him, and I believe in who he is and what he says, if you can say that, and that becomes big in your mind to where love and faithfulness, you're wearing it around your neck, and you're, you're trusting in God with all your heart and leaning not to you in understanding, whatever that thing is that's driving you crazy right now, gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So Jesus says, don't be afraid. Fear me. Don't be afraid. In fact, I read there are 365 times in Scripture that the words don't be afraid are used. Three hundred and One, don't be afraid for every day of the year. How do you not be afraid? Fear God. And you won't be afraid of anything or anyone else. And you will have health in your body and nourishment in your bones. If you get this right, guys. Now, look, I could stand here and give you advice for, 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 for marriage from Proverbs. I'm going to do that in November, Lord willing. All right? But if you don't get this part right... This is the overarching theme of it all. If you don't have a big picture of a big God who designed a world and who loves you and who's faithful to you, you get the point. Then all this other stuff. Well, okay, here's the, here's the fourth thing, and I'll just introduce this this week, and I'll pick it up next week. Number four, honor God with your wealth. You will be blessed. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. Why am I teaching about this? Because the text is leading us to this. And it's not an accident. If you look, if you have, a, if anybody actually ever uses a physical paper Bible anymore, and you look in your Bible, most Bible translators, they have a break at the end of verse 10. Of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 is considered a section, a new section stops starts in verse 11. And here's the end of this section that we've been talking through. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. So the wise instruction is to honor the Lord with your wealth and something called first fruits. And it's fascinating how this section of Proverbs ends with this passage about money. This is consistent with the whole of Scripture. Whether or not we honor God with money is a key indicator of whether or not we actually fear Him and put Him at the center of our lives. We can say that we put God first, but the repeated teaching of Scripture is that to prove this, we must put our money where our mouth is. If we truly fear the Lord, 
and believe his word, we will honor him with our wealth and prove that we do by bringing the first and best of our income. It's not just this text that teaches us that. There's a lot written about this in Scripture, a lot. Jesus talked a lot about the subject of how we think about money, handle money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a big deal because where our treasure is, that's where our heart is, right? That's what Jesus said. So our heart's connected to money in a very unique way. I like the way that uh, Raymond Ortland again, gets at this in his commentary. He writes, the Hebrew verb translated honor, honor the Lord with your wealth, means to treat the Lord as weighty, weighty, heavy. He said this word translated honor is the Old Testament word for glory. The glory of God is the central theme of the Bible. Everything that is wrong with the world today is traceable to this one mega sin, trivializing God. Life cannot work when we shut out the glory of God and treat this imposter called self as weighty. But it is so freeing to throw ourselves into honoring God or bringing God glory with all that we have, including our money. Now, some of you say, you know, I might be a little nervous about this topic, except I don't have any wealth. <laughs> so I can't honor the Lord with my wealth because I'm not wealthy. To which I say, if you earn an income of $40,000 a year, you make more money than 99% of people in the world. If you earn an income of just $13,000 a year, it places you in the top 10% of income earners in the world. Now, I realize there are gradations of wealth among us, but I think the larger point is to say that I think Scripture is wanting us to know that our wealth is whatever we have, regardless our level of income. Now, I'm going to dig next week, I'm going to dig into the idea of wealth. And, I, and, and one of the things that, including what does Proverbs teach us about how to accumulate wealth? Because very fascinating to me is the fact that the book of Proverbs presents a very positive view of wealth. And I've read Proverbs a number of times, but never to really study it to the extent that I had the last couple of months. And I have to tell you that I was surprised at what a positive view that Proverbs has of wealth, even indicating that God wants to bless us with wealth as long as money doesn't become our God. If we honor God with our wealth, it appears that God wants to bless us with more. Now that looks different in every life circumstance according to our calling and what that might look like for somebody, you know, friends of mine living who are missionaries in Calcutta, India, uh, what, what prosperity looks like for them and what it might look like for somebody living in West Orange, New Jersey might be two totally different things. But just fundamentally, there's this idea in Scripture that God is all for people having wealth as long as they honor him with it. The fundamental building block of honoring God with our wealth, of course, is to think in terms of whole life stewardship. Life stewardship, which I haven't taught about in depth for uh, almost two years now, is the biblical teaching that God is the owner of all we are and all we have and that we are stewards with the God-given responsibility to manage and make more of everything that we are and have. So we honor God with money when we acknowledge his ownership, 
When we manage his money wisely, which if you understand stewardship, you understand everything you are and have is his. And thirdly, if you invest his money wisely in both earthly things and heavenly things that in a way that brings a positive return. When I talk about managing God's money, I'm talking about things like budgeting and saving and insuring and leaving an inheritance. Proverbs has a lot to say about how we should manage money. When we manage money well, we honor God. And I also have come to understand more and more that part of life stewardship, and this is a new understanding for me over the last couple of years, also has to do with investing. There's this idea in Scripture that God expects us to make more of what we have. This is not a negative thing. This is a positive thing. We can honor God when we invest wisely. And when we invest wisely as followers of Jesus, as God-fearers, that's not only how we decide or don't decide, where we decide to invest physically in this world, but it also has to do with investing in things that bring an eternal return. And this is a fascinating concept that we can use money in a way that not only brings glory to God now, but that shows up in the age to come in an incredible return on our investment. You may say, well, what does that look like? And I'm almost finished, guys. Luke 16, 9, Jesus said, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The principle is you can use money in a way that matters for eternity. Or Luke 12, 33, give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. Or 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19, command those who are rich in this present world to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. When we, there's amazing potential in this. When we honor God with our money, it brings positive results now and forever. Now, and those of you watching online, press the heart thing. I finish with this couple statements. The fundamental building block of financial stewardship in scripture, of course, is the tithe. It's commonly understood that when Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 say, honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your income, that that's a reference to the tithe. The tithe means 10%. The tithe in Scripture was the first 10% of one's increase or income. First fruits are the best and first of our income. The tithe is used to advance God's work in the earth now in a way that brings eternal returns. In fact, we could say that the tithe is an investment in forever. But more importantly, the tithe is evidence that we get the whole idea of doing life God's way rather than our way. When we tithe, we're rejecting the Frank Sinatra, my way, way of thinking because there's something about the tithe that indicates where our heart is with God. The tithe demonstrates that we really do fear, love, obey honor God, which is why I love the paraphrase of Deuteronomy 14.23 from the Living Bible, which says, the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your 
lives. So, next week, by God's grace, I'm going to pick up on this subject. I'm going to talk about wealth from Proverbs. I'm going to talk about managing. I'm going to talk about investing. Not that I'm a financial advisor. I'm just going to tell you what Scripture says, uh, including go get wise counsel, better counsel from someone else around the specifics of how to invest. But I'm going to talk about the concepts in Scripture that allow us to honor God with our wealth in such a way that what's the, what's the well-being here? In Proverbs 3.9, it says... I can't even remember what it says. It says something about, oh, your barns will be filled to overflowing. In other words, your savings account. And your vats will brim over with new wine. Interpret that however you want to. All right.